I will remember that there is art to medicine as well as science, and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. Does anybody know what that's from? That's the Hippocratic Oath. We all took it. So that, I start out that way just to, to frame uh, the purpose of, of giving this talk. I'm a family physician and an addiction specialist, board certified in addiction medicine. I've been doing that for over 30 years. And about 10 years ago, so many patients who came to my center here in Las Vegas uh, for detox from opioids would say at the end of their detox, well, what are you going to do about my pain? And it turned out more than more than 50% of the patients who came to be detoxed from opioids had pain as the primary generator of their starting on their opioids. They were pathologically pursuing relief of their pain. They weren't getting high. People see that in, in your practices. So with that focus, we sort of felt like, I mean, I, I would say to them, they'd say, what are you going to do about my pain? I'd say, I, I don't know. You know, go go back and what, start, start back on opioids. That, that is dead, by the way. It's all right. Um, and that's kind of a shabby answer. So we started a functional restoration program uh, with a holistic approach, but really uh, looking at mind, body, spirit. How many people heard the talk on the brain? Is the pain in the brain or is the pain in the... Wasn't that amazing? Yeah, so that was a... I mean, I took lots of notes in that because it was really a a setup for what I want to talk about. And I want to talk about the, you know, what can we do for that, that brain phenomenon. If you didn't hear it, I mean, basically, it focused on the fact that if we used to think that the pain was a pathological sign that the tissue was abnormal, that the disease process was, was the issue, and we focus on that, and we didn't get people better. So the, the point is here that the pain is really more than just the tissue pathology, and that we have to pay attention to the central aspects of pain. And, you know, short of, of medicating that, some of us uh, are, are at a loss when, when we try and impact that. So, I have nothing to disclose. I do work at the Las Vegas Recovery Center, so I'll talk a little bit about my work. But for whatever reason, that's not an official disclosure, so uh, I'm not being paid to be here. Objectives, uh, I want to review principles of chronic pain and sort of making the, the, the point that the central nervous system is the place where this signal is processed and the brain's response to pain and suffering. So really, uh, no susception we might think of as pain. The human response to the pain is really the experience of suffering. Look at uh, effects of emotional distress on increasing chronic pain and then spend the time, uh, a fair amount of the time, talking about mindfulness. People... I, I'll ask the question, how many people are familiar with mindfulness practice? Great. How many people think mindfulness practices help with, with life in general? So most of you do. How many people have a regular mindfulness practice in your life? About 10%, right? <laughs> Let me ask it a different way. How many of you think that mindfulness practice helps patients with pain? Almost 100% of you, almost. We got the doubters, but that's all right. How many people actively encourage, teach, or train people in mindfulness practice in your... Well, that's great. So a, a percentage of you do. Those of you that don't, uh, I mean, at the end of uh, today's talk, hopefully you'll have 
some understanding of some of the, the true scientific benefits of mindfulness training, a real understanding of what that is, and some, some handle on how to teach that very simply uh, to patients in your practice. So I'm learning how to relax, doctor, but I want to relax better and faster. I want to be on the cutting edge of relaxation. I, I, I relate to that. So suffering, holding an attachment. Are people familiar with that terminology? I mean, some of what I'm going to talk about has, has to do with Buddhist uh, uh, philosophy and, and psychology. But it's really, you know, most of the patients that I see who come in are tenaciously holding on to their pain like this. And they're, they're, the energy that, that they exert in response to the pain is negative. So the tighter we... Just, try, just, just for a moment. Just sort of squeeze your fists really tight and then open your fist. I mean, there's quite a significant difference, is there not? And if we take that energy and we put it psychologically into... You know, I have back pain. I have chronic back pain. I've got a bulging disc, L4-5. You could see it on MRI. When I am engaged in my life, my pain is either irrelevant or absent. And it will become absent as I continue to talk today. But if I'm focused on my pain and I'm uh, bemoaning my pain and I'm stressing over my pain and I'm uh, feeling sorry for myself and getting angry at the fact that my back hurts, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, obviously it's going to get worse. And then mindfulness is a, 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 pertains to pain. I'll talk just a little bit about nutrition. Uh, mention some of the therapeutic techniques that I'm sure you've heard and read about that have a great validity uh, of, of uh, effectiveness and uh, evidence base behind them. Cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, and acceptance commitment therapy. Those are some of the uh, therapies that are very effective with chronic pain and, and just look briefly at physical modality. So everybody's familiar with the definition of pain. I mean, we start off saying that pain is sensory and emotional. It's associated with tissue damage, but if you heard uh, the talk th this morning and if you've been here, you know that the tissue damage is not the source of the pain. It's really the processing of that signal up in the central nervous system that causes the distress that we experience. Uh, pain's influenced by a lot of things. Uh, one of them is culture. So the way people are raised, there are civilizations where women deliver babies with no pain, no expression of pain, and no physical experience of pain. The husbands in that culture go to bed for three days while the women are delivering and in labor. So what is, what is that really about? Uh, I, I mentioned my back pain. I, I was raised in a Jewish household, and if any of you uh, are familiar with that, I mean, in my household it was not only acceptable to feel and talk about pain, it was expectable to feel and talk about pain. And it didn't take much. You know, Ma, how you doing? Uh, you know, and I would know. So I'd like to, I told you I had a bulging disc, right? But I like to tell you, no, nah, I'm just kidding. So, but I have a different experience of pain than a guy who was raised on a farm. He's from German stock uh, up in the Midwest. He weighs 350 pounds. And he has a ruptured disc. I've seen his MRI on the right side way worse than my experience of pain. And I say, Paul, how's your pain? And he's like, you know, no big deal. Pfft. You know, it's, I just want to strangle him sometimes. <laughs> I, 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 I said, Paul, my back is killing me. He said, oh, really? What's the cause of death going to be on your death certificate? <laughs> so I, I actually say that to patients. You can use that line. My feet are on fire. Get the fire extinguisher, you know. But, but... 
those messages, those cognitive statements, which are false, impact the experience of pain. Does that resonate with people? So we tell ourselves stories, we have a narrative about what this pain means, and those of us who have pain really can, can become very connected to that narrative, and it's not true. I mean, if I was dying of my back pain, I'd, you know, I'd been gone a long time ago. My head's going to explode, said a woman with chronic headaches. And I said, oh, you better get the pail, you know, just in case. But So what we think is going to happen is more likely to happen if we think it's going to happen. People are familiar with anticipation. There's a lot of data and studies that prove that if we think that it might... <laughs> I had a guy, very interesting guy, he had, he had uh, ear pain, unknown uh, etiology. Uh, they thought it was a virus that might have started it. Some doctor diagnosed him uh, with TMJ disease and did surgery on him. And after that, his pain level escalated. And... With his pain level escalation, he had anxiety and fear. He was furious with the doctor who messed him up, and he was dependent on opioids. And he, he said to me during his detox, he was one of the most fearful guys I ever met. He was a very high-functioning attorney, 70 years old, very wealthy, but overwhelmed with distress related to his pain. And I walked into his room, and I said, how's your pain today? And he said, my pain is a five, but it's rising. And I said, well, what does that really mean? And, you know, his, his frame of reference was every time it's a five and I feel this way, it goes up to a seven in the next hour. And we call that what? It's catastrophization, right? Making it worse than it really is. So the emotional and cognitive factors are really driving the experience of pain. And I think that happens in every patient who, who experiences pain to, to different degrees based on their cultural, uh, their resilience, their attitudes, but, but it, none of us are immune from that effect. Uh, in, in, uh, we, we run a group at, at, uh, with, with my patients, and I ask them to tell me about chronic pain. Just that's the, that's the statement. What is chronic pain? And they answer anxiety and fear and anger and frustration and impotence and self-esteem and suicidal and drug-addicted and uh, crappy parent. They, they rarely talk about the, the sensory nociceptive experience of pain. Because most of the experience of chronic pain is, is up in our heads. It's cognitive and emotional. So I, the, the working hypothesis is we have to deal with that in order to see people get better. And if we do brilliant surgery, people know David Hanscom up in Seattle. Have you heard of him? He wrote a really good book. I wrote some books. Uh, the Pain Antidote is my book. But after you buy that, you should look at David Hanscom, Back in Control. He just did a second edition. David is an orthopedic surgeon. He only operated on failed backs because he was that good. You know, everybody referred him. He's in the, the uh, Swedish system up in, in uh, Seattle. Very competent surgeon. And uh, he would operate on people for back pain with degenerative disc disease and all sorts of really wonderful pathology on their uh, MRI. And like 2% of them got better over the course of three years. And he had a, an, an epiphany, but he writes about it in his book. He really had a nervous breakdown because he, he just sort of questioned, what am I doing with my life? And he came out of this with a sense that if, until and unless I deal with the cognitive and emotional processes related to pain, I, the best surgeon in the world isn't going to fix that, that pain. So hopefully we'll get some techniques to deal with that. How does acute pain become chronic pain? This is a really fascinating thing. One of the predisposing factors, of course, is smoking. Smokers tend to develop uh, acute pain 
uh, or, or develop chronic pain, much uh, higher incidence. But there's other factors. There's resilience and there's culture and there's uh, genetics probably and some of the epigenetic factors. Acute pain is transient activation, but really it's this sustained currents, the sensitization of the peripheral nociceptors and then the plastic change in the brain, the, 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 the limbic system, the insula, the uh, amygdala, uh, and, and really there's some really good data coming out of Northwestern. Abkarian and his group have shown that actually it's the nucleus accumbens ventral tegmental area that are activated with chronic pain compared to the thalamus that's activated with acute pain. So it's really a different animal. And nucleus accumbens ventral tegmental area are involved with salience and, and reward. And what else is, what happens in the nucleus accumbens? Addiction. So it's no wonder that when we offer a medication that, that hits this spot, that, that affects the reward center and the relief center, that people get confused. We see a lot of people at, at uh, the center that have chronic use of opioids that have what Jane Ballantyne called complex dependence. They don't have frank addiction where they're snorting their Oxycontin and they're uh, you know, going to the street and they're using heroin, but they run out early because they're in pain. And one of the reasons, of course, they're in pain is that the opioids, are, they become tolerant to the opioid and doesn't work as well, uh, and they're hyperalgesic. But that's not the topic of my talk. Uh, but chronic pain is really a, a chronic process of upregulation and decreased ability to downregulate the pain signal. And that happens as a result of a variety of things, not the least of which is emotions and, and thoughts about pain. We uh, heard a little bit this morning in that talk about COMT, which is a, a catechol-O-methyltransferase, uh, metabolizes dopamine and other catecholamines, uh, and it, it influences the sensation of pain. So if pain is the overall experience, Nociception is the sensory experience. Certain people have a bigger experience of pain than others. Would we agree on that? Certain people are more sensitive to pain. Certain people have a lower threshold of pain, yeah? So let's say he has a very rapid a variant of COMT, this guy. What's your name? Patrick. Patrick sat up in front, so I told him I'd keep him away. So if Patrick had this rapid variant and I poked him, Patrick would go, oh, my God, don't you, oh, please, don't poke me, oh, don't, leave me alone. Now, what would we say about Patrick, strapping as he is? We'd say he's a big whiner, right? He's a wuss, he, big baby, and it's true, right? I always pick him. It's not true. No, you're tough. Yeah, I, I could tell. So listen to us. We're here, pain experts, judging poor Patrick because he's got a, a variant and a, and a genetically transmitted variant, as it turns out. 50% of the explanation of pain threshold or pain sensitivity is trans genetically transmitted. And you see cases where mom has a chronic pain syndrome and the kid's coming home uh, from school with shin splints, you know, unknown etiology pain. And then the second thing that really influences the COMT system uh, is trauma. 80% of the patients I see who have chronic pain at our center have serious trauma. And it, it's often the little t type of trauma where it's unsupported uh, family uh, involvement with, with life, you know, what's wrong with you, why can't you do better, but often major trauma, people who've had uh, sexual trauma or they've been to war or they've witnessed some, some awful things. Uh, and we see a, a phenomenon that we call medical trauma, people who've been to the surgeon and then had surgery to repair the surgery, and then they're on their third and their fourth and their fifth surgery for failed surgeries. You know, I, I had a patient who said, I want my neck fixed. 
you know, and there's no, there's no fix for that tissue. She didn't want to do the work. Um, I actually, she came with her husband, and I said, how many surgeries, tell me about your surgical history. And, and the husband said about the wife, we had our neck operated on six times. <laughs> People hear that? We call that malignant codependence, you know, an attachment. But, it's, but those factors play in. I mean, we will not treat a patient and, and do functional restoration unless we get a commitment from the family that they're going to be involved because they will be sabotaging of the process. So this is the central sensitization phenomenon, normal pain response in a variety of parts of the brain. Central sensitization is a heightened response based in trauma, based in uh, genetics, and based in emotional and uh, physical response. So suffering is described here. When touched with the feeling of pain, the ordinary uninstructed person sorrows, grieves, laments, beats his breast, becomes distraught, so he feels two pains, physical and mental. Just as if they were to shoot a man with an arrow, and right afterward they were to shoot him with another one, so he'd feel the pain of two arrows. That's really what we're talking about here, is the second arrow. We, we, that, it's an unnecessary phenomenon. And that was said 2,500 years ago by the Buddha. So, you know, this isn't new stuff. <laughs> we just forget this. You know, we forget, I think, maybe this group doesn't, because you're here at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon to hear about it. But I think, in general, the medical and treating professionals have forgotten this part of the equation. You know, what do we do for that suffering? And if that's 80% and we're, you know, medicating, uh, you get it. So I want to talk about mindfulness practice. We already decided that everybody needs it and hardly anybody's getting it. So uh, maybe we could... So let me... Uh, those of you who don't meditate but think it's a good idea, what keeps you from meditating? What's the problem? Time. time. You don't have enough time. What else? Kids. So that's a little bit of time, right? Obligation that you can't find a quiet place in your house. What else? Huh? We don't make an effort. So is that lazy? <laughs> people, people, lazy. So wait, wait. So this is a lazy group. You're a lazy guy. You don't go to work. You don't work 12 hours a day. You're, uh, you're a slug. Is that right? We tell ourselves we're, we're lazy. Yeah. What else? Say what, what you mean. Yeah, so I don't think it's going to really help, even though I sort of think it's going to help. I don't think it's going to help. Okay, so you're the one I want to really... <laughs> what, just out of curiosity, it's not going to help what? What isn't it going to do? Relieve my pain. Okay. Is that for you or for your patient? Oh, okay. So relieve your pain. Yeah, I got it. Okay, good. Thanks for being here. It takes time, takes energy, takes work. So another lazy, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a, you know, I don't have time. It's too hard. I got to work at it. Do you exercise? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. Okay. So, but so, so you're talking for the people that don't. Yeah. But but sometimes we'll exercise, but we won't meditate. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 Do everybody hear that? So it's it it needs to be. We need to be more desperate to to avail ourselves of this free 
you know, easy uh, technique. I, I get. It. I mean, you know, you, we're really reflecting on human nature, aren't we? I mean, because we're talking about ourselves, but also our patients. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's too, it's too, uh, what? It's too quiet, right? Is, is that, we, we want to be distracted. So sitting quietly with ourselves is, is too hard. Is that, that kind of it? Yeah. And boring. God. Anybody meditate and get bored? <laughs> It's too easy? Too easy. It must not work. <laughs> Sir. Great. Yeah, I will. No, I have it. I have got studies and studies and studies. Yes. Say it one more time. Have headphones on. Right. So it's hard to get quiet. I mean, there are apps. <laughs> you can put headphones on and listen to meditation app, you know. <laughs> or is that what you're talking about? No. <laughs> so I, there was a hand. Yeah. Oh, so when I get quiet, stuff comes up that I might not want to see. Yeah. That, that's, that's very common. And I'll just mention, you know, there's really very little downside to meditating. The, the one exception to that is people who are trauma survivors sometimes can't tolerate the quiet. It gets, because when the quiet comes, then the intrusions come, and those require skilled clinical assistance. So we at our center who have very high trauma folks, sometimes they either, they won't close their eyes or they won't sit in meditation because they just can't, they can't tolerate the, the distress. It takes some training too, right? It does. And somebody to influence you to You know, me. So a skill set that you you anticipate it it'd be you need you need to be trained in it. Okay. Of course. Well, it depends. You know, depends what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, actually. My understanding is prayer is speaking and, and meditating is listening, but prayer and meditation are part of the Christian tradition. And Yeah, 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 prayer, yeah. So, uh, look, I, this is not a religious-based uh, talk, so I don't want to, uh, I mean, I'm probably offending people left and right, so what, why bother apologizing? But, <laughs> you know, this is really a non-religious maybe spiritual technique uh, called mindfulness. Yes, sir? No. <laughs> we'll talk after, okay? Because that'll, that'll take me way off track, and I'm already off track. So I, I want to cover some of the basics of mindfulness, but, but we can chat after. Uh, somebody? Or we're... Yes, ma'am. I think if you're physically and mentally tired, it's difficult to Yeah, it's hard 
to do if you're tired? How many people go to sleep when you meditate? Yeah, so there's a solution for that. Meditate sitting up. And if, if you're really sleepy and tired, do it with your eyes open. Uh, it's not quite the same. Yes, ma'am. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. It, it, you know, meditation is really, in its best, falling awake. Uh, so there is an, an awakeness to it because there's a practice that, that the, it's based in. But there's no harm in sleeping. You know, if you have chronic pain and, and you put on a meditation CD and you go to sleep, that's probably really good, especially if it's at night. You know, that's, that's a wonderful practice. We do a, a meditative practice at the center called Body Scan. John Kabat-Zinn, another guy to buy a book from, Full Catastrophe Living. And John Kabat-Zinn has a manualized treatment approach to meditation that is a study. And you can get it on CD and you can get it in a book. But it's really, Body Scan is just a... a, a, a process of going reviewing the physical experience in your body without trying to change anything. So it's interesting. This is, this is really interesting. I do this talk a fair amount across the country, and usually the main thing that people say is, I can't meditate because my mind won't shut off. And nobody said that. That's really quite interesting. Yeah, she wanted to say it. All right, so we'll... <laughs> I didn't give you a chance. I wouldn't shut up. So... <laughs> that's, the, that's the common misconception. I can't meditate, because I, or I don't, do med- I don't do it right, like we're supposed to do it right and get somewhere. And that's, that's just not the way mindfulness practice and meditate. That's not what meditation is about. Meditation, mindfulness practice, is about noticing what's happening in the moment, and the key is to not judge it. So the story that I talked about related to pain also is a running narrative in each of our minds all day long, you know, every day, 24-7, whether we're asleep or awake, about what's so, right? Uh, What are they serving at the uh, buffet? And uh, who's talking next? And uh, how long is this guy going to go? And I got, where are we going for dinner? And what did I have for dinner last night? And well, am I going to go to the gym? And when's the flight tomorrow? And, you know, you could, you could edit the story, right? But we're all telling stories all, all the way, all the way, all the way. And that's what happens when we sit and try and quiet down, right? Our minds get really busy. That's just fine. The purpose of meditation, as I understand, is mindfulness. is just noticing what's happening and directing yourself to a particular focus that you might choose. The focus for mindfulness practice that I'm going to describe is the breath. It's ever-present, you know, comes in and out. It's natural part of us. It's nourishing and nurturing. And if and the, the whole idea of mindfulness practice and, and the relevance of mindfulness practice to pain is that our minds are off telling ourselves stories. If we practice this meditation process regularly, we will get better at being able to direct our thoughts towards the breath away from these negative thoughts. And it is the negative thoughts related to catastrophization, like rumination and uh, uh, ineffectiveness and pessimism, that if we redirect, people suffer less. Does that make sense to people? All right. So let me run through a few slides, and then I'll, I've, I've got a whole bunch of data that I'll share with you. But, you know, this is it's an old story. The focus is on insight in Vipassana, but really it's about 
noticing without judgment in mindfulness. And it's not to, it's not to change anything. What happens is that the result of body scan in our center, 20% pain reduction in a 20-minute meditative practice. I mean, what's the, what's the results of uh, taking an opioid in somebody's on them chronically? 20% if you're lucky. For how long? You know? And I had a patient who said, you know, I, I, my pain goes down when I breathe, but, uh, but then it comes back. Good news. <laughs> There's another breath coming right after that. You get how we, we <laughs> you guys are sharp. So intentional focused awareness. So it, there is effort. I, I forget who said, you know, th this takes effort. You know, it is a commitment. But it's not a commitment of an hour a day. It's, it's, it's best if done regularly on a daily basis. But it could be five minutes to start. And there are apps. There are some cool apps. There's Headspace. Dot com. I listen to that. I've been listening to it lately. They have, for those of us who have not enough time, a five-minute, a 10-minute, and a 15-minute version. And I think they have a 20-minute version as well. And they have all sorts of practices for that. There's another one called breathe.com that has very brief meditations. Um, <laughs> what do we want? Mindfulness. When do we want it? Now. <laughs> a bunch of ratty Buddhists. <laughs> so... Present moment without judgment. That's really the key. So if you can, as you listen and sit, you know, our minds do what they do. The purpose of meditation is to notice when your mind is somewhere else and bring it back. That noticing, it, the, the fact that your mind is off, does not, that's not a problem. Noticing that your mind has gone somewhere and directing it very gently back is mindfulness. And to the breath is the practice. So daily practice is best like tuning an instrument, and it changes the brain. There's neuroplastic, there's evidence of neuroplastic changes that benefit patients, and it's quite extensive uh, uh, research. Uh, I won't have time to go through all of it. Uh, you might want to Google Eric Garland, G-A-R-L-A-N-D. He's a psychologist in Utah who's uh, established or invented or manualized a, a technique called mindfulness-oriented uh, recovery training. And he, he works with addiction, but he also works with opioids and pain. And he's finding some really interesting results. Um, but there is evidence that the brain's nervous system, there's budding of nerves one towards the other with mindfulness practice. And it's not a ton. So the connections are enhanced. Neurotransmitter levels are affected. So decreased cortisol and epinephrine, uh, which are stimulating, and uh, increased serotonin and GABA, which are relaxing and antidepressant effect. Uh, I'll just mention a few studies. Zyden... Uh, has written extensively. There was one study in neuroscience, 2011, four days of mindfulness training. So it's not a huge course. Mindful, uh, my, MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, John Kabat-Zinn's, it's an eight-week manualized course. But, you know, what he did was he was at University of Massachusetts, and he opened a clinic for the people that nobody wanted, people with pain, people with anxiety, people with schizophrenia, and he taught them how to meditate, and they did yoga. And I think it was once or twice a week. And the results are brilliant. You know, at the end of an eight-week course, people's pain was down, their uh, voices were down, their medication use was down, and their quality of life was up. I mean, you know, uh, Zayden also said decreased pain unpleasantness. So the value judgment of the pain. You know, I got pain in my back. <clears throat> that rotten, stinking pain in my back is a different experience. The pain unpleasantness went down with people who meditated four days. Decreased activation. So what's going on in the brain? 
Contralateral uh, somatosensory cortex was decreased in activation. There was an increased activation of the anterior cingulate cortex and the anterior insula. Uh, there was an activation of the orbitofrontal cortex, which reframes contextual evaluation of sensory events. And thalamic uh, deactivation, so there was a decrease in, in thalamus activation. That was all in four days of mindfulness practice. Not a huge amount. Um, Brown and Jones, 2010, uh, decreased pain unpleasantness. In ex and this was experienced meditators. Curran Brown from the NIH, 50% reduction in depression with mindfulness practice. Uh, and it regulates attention to not become biased towards negative physical sensations and thoughts as in depression. So it's, it's really a change in attitude towards stuff like pain, uh, which is just what people with pain need. I, I do have one story about a successful meditator. If you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you re remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate and fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you're probably a dog. <laughs> so that's not what mindfulness is about. <laughs> gotcha, huh? So it's a, it's versus CBT, which is cognitive. This is a metacognitive process. It's, it's sort of a beside thinking, if you will. We change our relationship with our thoughts without changing the thoughts themselves. And that's really key. There's nothing to do. Just be with the process. Detach from thoughts, feelings, and physical sensations, and the attachment is suffering, as I mentioned. And the whole idea of this is if you practice this, then you get good at doing it when you're driving a car, Anybody have a little problem with anger driving a car? <laughs> I have a solution for that. It's called lane discipline. Drive in one lane. Don't change lanes. Don't get ahead of somebody. Don't cut over. It's, it's revolutionary. It really is. Now, if you're going to exit, plan to exit and change lanes. Because one guy was 50 miles out of his way and he said, I can't do this lane discipline. <laughs> and they can't cut you off if you let them in. That's my two... Uh, uh, Educative. Uh, <laughs> uh, we become an observer and a spectator of the thought. So we step back. And here's some interesting, uh, John Kabat-Zinn talks about this. He, he says, if you observe the pain, so close your eyes for a second. Think about something that's painful. So it could be an emotional experience or it could be something in your body. And just notice it right now. Shoulder, neck, back, butt, feet heartache, worry, fretting. Just notice that. Observe it without judgment. Breathe into it. And take another breath into it. Notice what's painful. Does it change or is it static? And now. And now. And now.
when you're ready, open your eyes. So that was meditating. What we do, that was two minutes, by the way. So if you could take that much time, you can meditate. So what was that like? So the question I would ask is, and then I want to hear from people what that was like, was the part of you that was watching the pain, the part of the observer part of you, was the observer part of you in pain? And I'm interested in hearing what people have to say. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. The part of us, if we can get separate from the, the pain and observe it, the part of us that observes it is not in pain. Now, that takes practice. It really does. Certainly in the throes of a, a, a muscle cramp or uh, you know, an excruciating pain experience, it might be tough to execute that plan. But people can do it. So what was that like for people, just sitting for a couple of minutes quiet? You were relaxed? Good. Anybody? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. So uh, a person who depends on distraction or benefits from distraction has trouble going into the pain. If distraction works, you know, that's the uh, periaqueductal gray activates when we're distracted. So, you know, my back hasn't bothered me at all until now, you know, because I was distracted, I was concentrating. So if distracting tasks work and there's data that, that support it, uh, that's great. The, the problem is there are a lot of patients where they can't get distracted. And, and those patients benefit from moving into the pain and noticing it where it is. But, you know, if you're able to distract, I, I actually had a guy who came in with cervical spine uh, disc disease and he had a fusion and, you know, five degrees both ways was about as much as he could move and he was on high-dose opioids and he was 70 years old with heart disease. So the, he detoxed in the first couple of days he was in group and he got real dizzy at the end of group and as he was walking out he fell down and he kicked the chair and dislocated the first three toes of his right foot. So... We don't have an orthopedist on staff. We called an ambulance, and he's at the nurse's station hollering, Oh, my God, my toes, my toes. And I said, Oh, what happened? I fell down, my toes, my toes. I said, Well, how's your neck? He said, My neck? <laughs> Screw my neck. It's my toes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so another vote for distraction as a, as, a, as a skill to train into. And there, there is great data that supports distraction as an effective measure. Again, there, there are some of, of your patients are not going to be able to do it. You know? and, and this is really something that speaks to patients who can't distract. And uh, you know, I, I would encourage you to offer that to them. But yeah, I mean, if distraction works, it's terrific. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 
Sure. Yeah, so every, do you hear? I mean, that was a pretty good voice. It's a really interesting question. If the patient can successfully distract from their depression, by all means, you know, if they can go to the park and do a walk and, and read a story and all the rest of it. The concern is that if they could do that successfully, they probably don't need any help. <laughs> you know, it, the, the patients that I think show up for us are the ones that are unsuccessful in doing that. And this is really an opportunity to offer them an option. If, if, if you say to me, geez, every time I meditate, my pain gets worse, then please don't meditate. You know, it, it seems pretty logical. But really, there is a, a vast number of patients who cannot, who cannot distract. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, object of meditation can be anything. I mean, there's guided visualization where you can actually go to a sweet place where you had a wonderful experience and people go to the lake and they, and they picture. You know, one of the things that I intended to get to that I probably won't is, is uh, acceptance commitment therapy is what's valuable to you, what's good about your life, what can you do that will, be, that will feel good, uh, and how, how can you commit to getting there. And there's a whole much more to acceptance commitment therapy, obviously, than that. But so finding something that is valuable and, and positive is a great idea. And it actually is correlated. Stephen Hayes from University of Reno wrote a book about act and pain. It's correlated with lower pain scores. And not only that, but the attention to the pain. So the pain score might be eight, but the distress about the pain is lower. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you're actually right on the, the right track. And I would encourage people, if you're going to do something with this, to explore a, a variety of alternatives. Uh, and, you know, what can you do in your office? You can sit with a patient and ask them to close their eyes and spend a couple of minutes doing just what we did and then find out what happened, you know, and direct them to use what was beneficial in, in, their, in their home life and to come back and report on that. Yes, sir. Great. Great. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's very good. So, so I'll tell you, I, I went to a training with John Cabot Zinn. And we did walking meditation. You mentioned walking. There's a variety of ways you can meditate. One is to just walk meditatively, you know, just notice the foot on the floor and each breath. Uh, and, you know, if you've ever been at a retreat where people do walking meditation, it looks kind of like Night of the Living Dead, you know, people are <laughs> like that. And I happened to be doing it, and I looked to the side, and one person was across the field. And John Kabat-Zinn himself was over here, and he had moved like this much. And I was sort of halfway up the street, and I thought, I'm doing it wrong. You know, I can't get this judgmentally, right? I can't stop judging myself. And I actually raised my hand in his, uh, we had a discussion part of the, the talk, and I said, I can't stop judging. What do I do? And he said, well, let me ask you this, Mel. When you notice that you're judging yourself, 
Is that part of you judgmental? Just like when you notice that you're in pain, is that part of you that notices in pain? And the answer was no. And it was like a, it was like a light bulb for me. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, utilizing these skills and, and teaching people techniques is, is, has some limited value depending on a patient's rece- responsivity and receptivity, but don't give up on them uh, by all means. There was another question I saw? Okay. So beginner's mind, open-hearted, open-minded to new possibilities. This is about being sweet to yourself. You know, patients often tell me, I can't do it. I'm, I'm no good at this, you know, and they beat themselves up for doing it wrong. So, you know, at the very least, a, a gentle, open uh, posture is most important. Tenderly holding and intimately knowing our suffering in all circumstances. And this is not easy stuff. This takes courage. You know, sitting in the face of pain and really experiencing increased pain. And what is that really about for you? Uh, we don't want to feel what we feel. We automatically want to cover up the pain in one way or another. <laughs> and there it was. He was covering up the pain. <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> we, want to, we want to look directly with compassion and humor. Thank you, sir. <laughs> you know, my patients take themselves so seriously. I'm sure yours do as well. This is the end of the world. So there is actually, I'm a, you can tell I, fool, I like to fool around. Well, there is a skill set in dialectical behavioral therapy. DBT is mindfulness and distress reduction. So obviously everybody in pain has some degree of uh, experience of distress, and they have a whole manual. Marshall Lenahan wrote a manual on, on how to administer this. But my favorite part of dialectical behavioral therapy is a technique called irreverence. You know, irreverence, not taking yourself so damn seriously. And groups, in my experience, is the most effective way to do that because, you know, you have somebody with three surgeries sitting next to somebody with eight surgeries, and it's quite impactful. Wow, you know, I, I, I never thought of that. Um, finding meaning of the pain is sort of the advanced course, but people do. People get more powerful. Hemingway said, the world breaks all of us, and after some are stronger at the broken places. People find meaning in their pain, as, as hard as that is to believe. Um, focus on the breath, thoughts ebb and flow. So one of the uh, analogies I use is like a soap bubble. You just pop it and it's gone. Thoughts, thoughts aren't real, right? I mean, we know that, right? They, they seem real. They seem to have substance, but they're not. Bring attention back to the breath like training a puppy. Just gently, you know, back to the breath, back to the breath. I actually was teaching this at, at the center, and one woman, her trauma was that she had run over a puppy Swear to God, the family dog. So that didn't go well. So, and if I've triggered anybody, I'm sorry. So it's not about pushing away anything or holding on to anything. Cravings and urges for a desire for things to be different is really what we're just going to notice and hold. It is just, you know, that stupid expression, it is what it is, is really the essence of, of uh, meditation. So it's time we have people come in. So I would just say thank you very much for your attention. I'll be around.